Welcome to The Smartest Doctor in the Room with your host, Dr. Dean Mitchell, interviewing the leading doctors in the country to get insights into the best medical treatments available today. Not everyone has access to the best specialists, but you can advocate for yourself and learn the right questions to ask your doctor and the best possible treatment options. Remember, what you know can make a difference in your health care. Welcome to The Smartest Doctor in the Room. I'm your host, Dr. Dean Mitchell. Before we get into today's podcast, I do want to take a moment to thank all of our loyal listeners. Today will be the final podcast of 2019, and in our first year, we have reached over 5,000, actually closer to 6,000 listeners, and it's just growing exponentially. It's been so exciting for me to share the expertise of so many interesting specialists with you. And I think you can see today's specialist is it's going to be terrific. And I hope you continue to follow the podcast and make suggestions of topics you would like to hear about. And please leave reviews. Today, we're going to be talking about fibromyalgia. Fibromyalgia is an elusive illness in that it is estimated that it affects 6 to 12 million people in the United States. 75 to 80% of them are women, but men and even children are affected as well. It's been called elusive because the medical profession doesn't know the cause, but this may change after you hear today's podcast. My guest today is Dr. Ann Louise Oaklander. She's an associate professor of neurology at Harvard Medical School and assistant in neurology and neuropathology at the Massachusetts General Hospital, one of the most famous hospitals in the country where she directs the nerve unit. Dr. Oaklander is an international expert in peripheral neuropathy and specifically in the field of small fiber neuropathy. And we're going to find out why that's important. So with that, I'd like to introduce Dr. Oaklander to the podcast. Hi, everybody. (laughs) She's reaching us from snowy Boston, uh, (laughs) where she said her husband's busy shoveling out the snow (laughs) so she can walk safely, which is good. And this makes a great excuse not to join him. That's right. That's right. So I'll, I'll give you some cover on that. Okay, Dr. Oaklander, this is where I want to start. Because, again, I know your background and your specialties, and we're going to get to all of that. But the big issue is chronic widespread pain is a horrendous problem in this country and in the world. Patients run from doctor to doctor, specialist to specialist. Where should patients go first that have chronic pain? How do they find that right medical specialist? Is there any guidelines or algorithms that you would even recommend to general doctors when a patient comes in with that widespread chronic pain? Thank you so much for introducing this issue. It's become only more and more timely with our awareness of the shortcomings of relying on symptom management pain medications in particular, to treat these people. They're just not that effective, and they come with a whole host of problems. I'm going to suggest we add one more word to your definition, which is unexplained chronic widespread pain. Okay. So widespread pain is defined by the rheumatologists as pain affecting all four quadrants of the body, meaning this is not pain due to your broken leg or some other regional problem, but that's why it's called widespread. But what we're focusing on, whether we speak about small fiber neuropathy or fibromyalgia, 
is previously unexplained widespread pain. That means patients who've already been evaluated by their physician, sometimes by a rheumatologist, to make sure they don't have arthritis or the flu. Well, again, we're talking about chronic widespread pain, meaning it lasts longer than three months. But there there are any number of conditions that can cause widespread chronic pain. We're talking specifically about the very large numbers of people, as you say, with uh, unexplained chronic widespread pain. So let me ask you, as a professor, associate professor at Harvard Medical School, if you were asked how I am sometimes, I go when I teach the medical students here in New York, if you were to go in to teach a bunch of the medical students going on to their residencies, or if you were asked to speak to, let's say, some primary care doctors, internists, family practitioners, and they say, Dr. Oaklander, what do we do? We get this patient that says, I have widespread chronic pain. I just want to get your opinion, and we'll, we'll, we'll you know, go into more detail on certain things, but where would you direct them, or would you say to them, order a few of these tests? I mean, do they go to the pain management people, which I find, unfortunately, is usually means a lot of medications and procedures? Do they go to the rheumatologist? Do they go to a neurologist? How, how would you train these doctors to say, where do you send this person with widespread pain? Because so many of them go to multiple doctors, and they're exhausted by the time they get to hopefully somebody that helps them. I think they should start with their primary care, hopefully an internist or a pediatrician in the case of children, because there's such a wide differential diagnosis that it's important that they see a specialty that's expert in generating a differential diagnosis, meaning what are the most common causes of that particular presentation, and then doing the test to help clarify them. You're right that many patients with pain get reflexively shunted off to pain centers. Right. And I think that's a problem because, as you point out, most of these are staffed by anesthesiologists. That's right. As an extension of their training in managing acute and perioperative pain. But they're not skilled. They're not trained to do complex diagnosis. And that's certainly what's required here. Right, that's so a great point. all internists and all PCPs should be able to conduct the initial evaluation and figure out where is the pain coming from. Again, it's, it's an entirely different differential diagnosis if the pain is coming from the joints, in which case you might be thinking of arthritis and send them to a rheumatologist. Maybe it's from the muscles which might raise concerns about myopathy or myositis. Maybe it's neuropathic pain, which is tingling, shooting, burning, stabbing pain that makes you start to think about neuropathy. Maybe it's a bone pain because they have some widespread process going on inside their bones, which makes you think about a hematologist, oncologist. So the internist or pediatrician needs to be the first person to be able to think intelligently and narrow the diagnostic process down to the best. Yeah, specialist. that's a great point. I want to, for our listeners to listen to what Dr. Oakland is saying, because I know this is sometimes very hard for patients where also essentially you have to be your own advocate. You really, when you go to your doctor, have to try to explain the symptoms the best way you can, insist on getting the time that you deserve and need 
to be evaluated before you start going through this maze of specialists and going through multiple tests where a really good history by a clinician that's listening and trying to zero in can at least be a good start to finding what direction to go in. Because that's what I find. I find so many of these patients are so frustrated. I think there's another factor that plays into the difficulty here, which is the knee-jerk response of a lot of medical professionals to that complaint of unexplained chronic pain. I think it triggers a fear response in a lot of medical professionals. And the fear is that the patient perhaps may be seeking pain medications or the doctor's going to be sued for prescribing narcotics or the patient's going to complain a lot and cause problems. So I think doctors need to kind of be aware that their own biases have contributed to the abandonment of many of these patients. And I think patients also need to understand doctors' concerns and frustrations. This is difficult for them as well. And I think it's important for patients to carry themselves in a way that assuages these concerns and shows their willingness to follow established medical practice. That's a good point. And the point also you made up in one of your articles, I really caught my eye because very few doctors will mention this in a medical paper or journal, but you expressed concern, I believe, also that since the majority of patients with, and what we're going to get to fibromyalgia, are women, I mean, 75% in some of the reports, and a lot of times their physicians are men, that unfortunately there's that bias of not being taken seriously. I mean, I think the good news is there are more and more women physicians coming into the the workforce, and and maybe that'll change, but it's also obviously a concern. And, and the other thing which you uh, pretty much were just about to mention was that, you know, again, a lot of the doctors tend to quickly think these patients are, it's a psychiatric issue, that uh, maybe some severe stress in their life or you know, some underlying mental health issue is what's triggering the chronic pain, and which it can in some cases, but as good physicians, we should do our due diligence to make sure there's not something that physically can be treated. What I see more often is that having an undiagnosed medical condition, particularly when it's as salient, as distressing as chronic pain, does make patients depressed, anxious, neurotic, needy, and in the case of some of them, leads them to develop what I call secondary symptoms, which help to make their distress visible, whether it's limping or Mm. other more visible signs of illness. And I think doctors need to understand where this comes from. And just because the patient they see in their office who's had months or years of unexplained symptoms and run around by the medical community is anxious, depressed, etc., doesn't mean that that's the cause of their symptoms. And I tell many of these patients, hey, I understand. If I had the problems you have, I'd be depressed and anxious as well. It's a normal response. Yeah, I think that's so important for them to hear that. I, I see that in my office as well. You know, when patients, you know, I call myself the 10th doctor because usually the patients have been to nine other doctors by the time they come to me to, see, to be seen, for example, fibromyalgia. 
and uh, I go through all of their records. Like yourself, I, I do. I think just the acknowledgement and what I like the term I like to use for a lot of them too is I tell them they're warriors. And I mean that in a complimentary way. I mean, to, to keep on fighting and battling to get better shows that you still have that warrior mentality. And, you know, my job is to try to help you or get you to the right person. Uh, I want to move on to fibromyalgia. And this is interesting because we've had a prior discussion and, you know, we've talked about, you know, what is fibromyalgia? And, and you've said also, I think, in a previous interview, it's a condition or a syndrome. It's not a diagnosis. And prior to about two decades ago, it didn't, the term didn't even exist. It became sort of a default diagnosis. I mean, patients with all of these widespread chronic pain and the medical you know, societies felt like they needed to give this a label because they realized there was, it seemed to be something real here, but they, they couldn't explain it. And, um, and if they give it a label that's in Latin, you see, it makes it sound mm, like Yes, right. It sounds thing. right. And, you know, one of the things, Dr. Oakland, which I found fascinating how you got involved with this, and we're going to talk about that too a little bit, is that for a long time, fibromyalgia tended to fall into the rheumatology sphere. You know, the rheumatologists who deal with autoimmune disease and, and certain types of arthritis uh, seem to sort of become the the guardians of this condition. And, you know, they came up with all their criteria about you had to have these 12 different trigger points and all these other things, even though they couldn't substantiate it with any type of blood test or x-ray findings. And in, in general, what they did was they prescribed medications, which are mainly in the anti-seizure category, like gabapentin or things like Sevilla or Lyrica to try to help with these patients' pain, which in my experience, I've rarely seen them help anybody. Again, that's just my personal experience. So my question to you is, how did you, as a nerve specialist, get involved with this condition? Well, that's a very good point. And I think you're correct that because I'm a woman, perhaps female patients seek me out or they feel more comfortable in engaging with me or going over their symptoms with me. So that may have something to do with it. Um, I think I also have somewhat of a reputation for being a medical detective. Ah, that's always I've good to have. <laughs> discovered or described a number of the causes of medical symptoms. So fibromyalgia began to intrigue me about... 10 years ago because it is so common and it is so poorly understood. There are epidemiologic studies that report that it affects up to several percent of the population. That seems kind of high to me, to be honest, but either way, we would agree that this is the most common among these mystery chronic widespread pain. So also the other reason why fibromyalgia was attractive for research is because of the work that the rheumatologists had done and the existence of these American College of Rheumatology diagnostic criteria. All diagnostic classifications are imperfect. They evolve as we understand more. But nonetheless, these have been very useful because 
they've allowed researchers to be confident that they're studying the same types of patients and that the results are comparable across different studies. Now, that's a good point. But what I want to really emphasize, what I was impressed how you got involved with this, and I'm going to mention a study you, you did, which really was groundbreaking, but that, you know, it's sad to say, but a lot of doctors almost like, quote, run away from patients like this. So that was the point I was sort of making. The rheumatologist like, okay, We'll see those fibromyalgia patients. Nobody else really wants to see them. Neurologists, I think, in general, did not want to, you know, I don't want to classify as a group, but a lot of them really didn't want to see them. I don't think they, again, neurologists also like specific findings. People, doctors, as you know, are very comfortable finding common diagnosis, and they do like unusual diagnosis as long as there's, you know, an antibody or an MRI finding that confirms things like myasthenia gravis, for example. Doctors, if they heard the patient they thought maybe has myasthenia gravis, they wouldn't say, well, I'm not going to see this patient. They're just too complicated. They're like, oh, wow, let's dig into this. And with fibromyalgia, because there were so many unknowns, again, I didn't remember seeing the literature too many neurologists stepping into the waters. And what I want to just mention, I think, I wonder if this is what got you interested in this, is that I guess you were affected by seeing young children affected with fibromyalgia. And I know you did a study with Max Klein where you looked at these children that had widespread juvenile pain syndromes. And uh, maybe you could tell us a little bit more about that and how you decided at that point, I think it was in 2013, to do a study on these patients. In 2007, or maybe it was 2006, it was 2007 when we published it, the residents from the Brigham, our sister hospital here in Boston, called me and said, Dr. Oaklander, could you please come over to the Brigham? We have this teenager who's screaming and crying from unexplained widespread chronic pain, and his parents are very upset. Nobody can figure out what's going on. Please come over and see if you can help. And so I traveled across town to the Brigham and consulted on this patient along with my friend and colleague, Tony Amato, we thought it was possible that his unexplained pain might be from his peripheral nerves. It had that quality of burning. Uh His limbs were red and swollen. He had to dip them in cold water, which is called erythromyalgia. And we both knew that this can indicate excess firing of a certain type of small fiber neuron, the C-fibers. So we performed the key test for small fiber neuropathy, which is taking a tiny little skin biopsy under local anesthesia from his lower leg. And lo and behold, this confirmed a very severe case. Well, Tony and I were really perplexed. This this kid was very healthy. In fact, he was a member of the Junior Olympic lacrosse team. He didn't have diabetes. He hadn't been exposed to chemotherapy. Why could he possibly have neuropathy? And in, we had to treat him even though we didn't know what was going on. He hadn't responded to gabapentin or morphine drips or the most aggressive pain management that the pain service could offer. And so we considered the possibility that he might be having an immune attack and decided that we really had little to lose and potentially a lot to gain by treating this unexplained chronic pain as 
a, uh, an acute autoimmune small fiber neuropathy. And treating him with corticosteroids, the standard treatment for inflammatory and immune conditions, gave him a remarkable, dramatic improvement, really over the course of just hours. And I treated him for several years, was able to taper him off steroids. He essentially recovered and went on to live his life. So sometimes it's these very dramatic cases that make you decide to take up a larger, more comprehensive prospective study. Yeah, that's fascinating because I think people don't realize, you know, even our physician colleagues, Dr. Oglander, like a lot of times they'll say to him, oh, I don't know if that works. Let me see the double-blind study, da-da-da. But so many terrific physicians I've talked to over the years, and I know in my own life and in my own practice, sometimes it's a dramatic case that gets you to rethink your perspective. Preconceived notions. Yeah, preconceived notions of what, you know, what can you learn from that isolated case because there might be something there. So is that when then after after that particular young man's case that you decided to do a, a further study on, uh, it was on young children, really, under 21. Yes. So we, I realized I'm not a pediatric neurologist, but fortunately my mother was. Oh, really? And with her encouragement <laughs> and the encouragement of one of her trainees, Oliver Sachs, who was a big Oh, yes. Oh, he's devotee terrific. Terrific writer. Of the, yeah, he was a great writer, but he really and my mother both emphasized the importance of observing That's right. patients. That's right. Yes. And they said if the patient doesn't obey the textbook, it's not that the patient is at fault, it's that the textbook is inaccurate. That's a great and line. And you need to carefully observe and publish from that patient. So the textbooks can be updated to match the actual real world. So for them, uh, my mother being a pediatric neurologist, she encouraged me to continue to work with children. And I realized that children were very good for research, again, because they don't have all those other possible confounding conditions. They don't have arthritis, diabetes, and smoking too much, and chemotherapy a few years ago, drinking too much, etc. So that was the genesis of the 2013 paper that Dr. Klein and I published in which we looked at, I believe it was 41 people with the onset of unexplained chronic widespread pain before age 21 when they were children. And you found in that study about 59% of the young patients had small fiber neuropathy, I guess, based on your, uh, your skin biopsies? Yes. So what I would emphasize to your listeners is the importance of seeking objective diagnostic confirmation. The symptom of chronic pain, widespread or not, is so vague, can be caused by so many things, that it's really important to push to get objective diagnostic confirmation. Yeah. And for small fiber neuropathy, the recommended test, the gold standard test are these little skin biopsies I mentioned. Mm-hmm. Again, that can't be influenced by the patients. So if somebody has an abnormal skin biopsy, you can't explain that away as exaggeration or right. drug-seeking behavior. Right. That gives the, the physician confidence to go ahead and look into the cause and treat the patient. Yeah, that dovetails perfectly what I wanted to ask you in the next thing. And um, what I think throws so many people off uh, and probably even 
maybe even neurologists with about the small fiber neuropathy is that you would tend to think it's a localized symptoms. But again, what you described in your cases was that, yes, there were some of the cases where there was classic burning or numbness in the feet, which would be more obvious. But then you mentioned other symptoms that, again, are confusing to doctors when a patient reports fatigue or reduced strength or dizziness, which you reported was related to orthostatic hypotension, or GI symptoms where 60, 70% of them felt bloated. What did you make of that? Again, as a classically trained neurologist, you just had to open up your thoughts about this because, again, this wouldn't seem like a pure neurological problem based on the other symptoms these patients were complaining of. Well, you're absolutely right. This doesn't fit the classic descriptions of neuropathy, or let's say not all the symptoms do. But the problem is, is that these small fiber neurons go everywhere in our body, and they control and modulate virtually every organ and tissue, except for our hair and our fingernails, which is why we can go to the beauty parlor and have them clipped. But other than that, every other organ in your body, including your brain, is influenced by these fibers. So I never yet had a patient come into my office and say, Dr. Oaklander, my small fibers are killing me. Mm. Instead, they report the symptoms in the tissues and organs that are innervated by those malfunctioning small fibers. Uh, I think a good way to think about it is a wiring problem. Mm -hmm. So when there's a wiring problem somewhere in your house's electrical system, it doesn't usually show up in the actual wires themselves. Instead, some device somewhere begins to flicker or malfunction or not work well, and you've got to do a sleuthing job or bring an electrician or a computer person, whoever it is, in to actually track it down and say the cause of the problems is not where you're seeing the problems, but it's the wiring that controls that particular device or part of your home. I love that analogy. You know, when I teach the medical students, I like to tell them, you are medical translators. That is your job. As much as they teach you in medical school, oh, listen carefully enough, the patient will tell you the diagnosis. Yes, he will give you the hints of a story, of what the diagnosis might be, but he will not come in and say, yes, I have small fiber neuropathy or I have, God forbid, MS. You rely on the doctors from their experience and training and listening carefully to the stories so that you can put together the pieces of the puzzle that, as you say, explain where the wire is blown, literally, and how to... uh, to fix it. Now, I want to ask you too, which is so important. I mean, the list, which I've seen in papers for small fiber neuropathy, the causes, which is good in one way because there are a lot of underlying causes to this condition. And as you mentioned, we'll talk about later on too, it's, you know, in some ways very treatable or reversible. Let's put it that way. But my question to you is just for example, too, like when you call some, some places call the first tier causes of small fiber neuropathy, like diabetes or, or vitamin deficiency or alcohol use or infections. Why are these what we would tend to think of as metabolic, physiological issues affecting the nervous system? I'm just, I'm just curious. It has to do with the cell biology. Okay. These peripheral neurons are very interesting, and they're in a very tenuous state. That's because they're super long. They're the longest cells in our body. 
and they extend some of them up to four or five feet long, particularly these sensory neurons. They have their cell bodies near the spinal cord or the brain in the sensory ganglia, and then they send these long, long axons all the way out to our hands and our feet. That's why about three-quarters of patients report symptoms first in their hands and feet. I think of it kind of like if you're on a train going out to Siberia versus you're taking a local train line out of Moscow, boy, by the time you get to Siberia, thousands and thousands of miles away, the probability that there will have been some kind of interruption somewhere along the track gets to be pretty high. So Mm. these small fibers, I call them the canaries in the coal mine because they're in such a tenuous state that whenever the conditions aren't just right for them, they're cell bodies, the apparatus that makes the proteins and the macromolecules and the organelles and transports it these long distances out to our hands and feet, it it becomes unable to maintain the farthest ends and the tips of our neurons start to fray. So the first thing that happens is they begin to fire and send signals up to the brain when they shouldn't. Normally, pain neurons should only fire when there's a stimulus, a potentially harmful stimulus going on. They should be quiet otherwise, right? I mean, I'm not feeling any pain right now. I hope your listeners aren't either. When these neurons start to fire, even if there's no stimulus, the brain perceives it the same way. It's just as painful. And the person feels as if they're being stabbed or burned or scratched or cut, and it hurts just as much, even though there's visibly nothing like that going on. I guess these fibers must have a very, they must have evolutionary, a very important function, I guess, to protect us, because otherwise, why would we have this? Yes, I love these neurons. These are evolutionarily among the most primitive of neurons, and you're exactly right. These are what's called nociceptive neurons. They're here to defend us against harm and danger. And because they evolved super early, they're present even in very amoeba and tiny little organisms floating around in the primordial ooze, they had to do a lot of different jobs. So they do different jobs when they go to different parts of our body. For instance, they also interact with immune cells because part of defending us against injury and illness is jiggling the white blood cells and saying to them, whoa, we were cut here, we were burned, something's going on. Start flooding into the tissues and help us clean it up. They interact with the blood vessels. That helps them to control the flow of blood to different parts of the body, to shut it down where it's not needed, to increase blood flow to tissues that are becoming hypoxic or don't have enough oxygen. You know, the only thing confusing to me is is that in my training through medical school and internal medicine residency, when I used to sometimes think about neuropathies like diabetes and the much more rare thing like leprosy, it was more like the pictures we would see of, again, because these patients lost sensation, that you'd see these terrible ulcers or they would have all this trauma to their feet or their hands, obviously the extremities, because they couldn't feel 
And so, again, these nocebo receptors were not really performing their job, warning them, don't put your hand on, you know, in a hot stove or watch out for sharp objects on the ground, that type of thing, right? Because isn't, isn't it, it's interesting. It's almost like the opposite. Like with these patients that have well, the small fiber. Well, both they have, happen, Dean. Yeah? Both happen. Okay. And so, but the point is, is they begin to fire excessively earlier when they're still there. Okay. And then paradoxically, that excessive firing increases the need for metabolic supply and delivery of more molecules and oxygen and nutrients. So it kind of sets them up uh, in a cycle of, of insufficiency further. If, if that continues to happen for whatever the reason, or in many patients, it's not one reason, but it's a combination of reasons, they ultimately degenerate. And then mm. it's when they degenerate that patients develop the more classic symptoms you're talking about, which is actual loss of ability to feel sensation. So yes, if you carefully examine some of these patients, many of them, in, in fact, most will have some loss of sensation to pin, mm. particularly down in their, in their feet and toes. That's interesting. But they can have the abnormal firing going on uh, before, they typically do before they start losing sensation. That's a great point because that's, again, a type of physical exam that any doctor should be able to perform. You know, just one other thing before I go on to something about what the causes. It's interesting, you know, I, I think you'd appreciate this. Neurologists in the field of medicine are noted, I think, among most of the other doctors as usually the quintessential at best, at the physical examination, right? Like in your neurology training, you know, like I remember back in the days when I'd have my neurologist who was training me during my internal medicine section, like we were all say, oh, what does the CT scan show? He goes, we don't need to look at the CT scan yet. Let's examine the patient very carefully, you know, test the reflexes, yes. check his, his gait, you yes. know, all those things. And, and I, I always loved that about neurology. It was like, I think they took a lot of pride in not losing the physical exam, which unfortunately in, in modern medicine has really taken a hit. I want to ask you, though, too. Not you, by me. I know. And I, well, that's why I would tell my patients, go to see Dr. Oaklander. <laughs> you got this problem. Um, let me ask you a question. When you get a patient also that has, let's say, you've diagnosed small fiber from the skin biopsy, do you do then the first, second, and, and third tier type of testing? I mean, for, just to check for all these underlying conditions, you know, obviously, whether it's diabetes or celiac disease in the first tier or sarcoidosis or a genetic disease such as Fabry's disease. Is that something that you, again, in your clinic that you, you're doing sort of as a routine part of the workup? Yes, that's a very important point. So getting told you have peripheral neuropathy, whether it's large fiber or small fiber, is just part A of the diagnosis. Immediately, the patient has to jump to part B, which is so doc. In me, what's the cause? Right. And don't just settle if a doctor tells you you have peripheral neuropathy. You should be immediately asking, let's figure out what's the cause in me. Because to treat it effectively requires diagnosing what the cause is and then getting rid of the cause. Unlike brain neurons, peripheral neurons continue to grow throughout life. You alluded to this earlier, uh, but I want to say very explicitly that if you can figure out what the cause is and you can institute some treatment to improve the underlying cause, 
in most patients, particularly those who were young and otherwise healthy, these neurons do regenerate. They grow back. Mm. And so that's that's why it's just super important to get the correct cause diagnosed in you. So yes, I immediately perform a, a first round, what we call screening tests for the common causes of neuropathy. Um, and in 2016, I published a paper on this with several of my postdoctoral fellows, and we generated a list of evidence-based recommended diagnostic tests, and that's been posted on my website, www.neuropathycommons.org, one word. This is a... a not-for-profit, grant-supported website designed to make information accessible, evidence-based, hopefully unbiased information accessible to the public. By putting this form and the paper that generated it on the website for public use, we're hoping to empower patients so that they can download this and then bring this set of blood tests into their doctor's office uh, in case the doctor themselves might not be familiar with it. So you don't need to go see a neurologist, and you don't need to come and see me to have these blood tests done. These are standardly, widely accessible blood tests that can be done in almost any medical setting. Yeah, I saw your, I, no, unfortunately I got your paper and I saw that and I'd seen it in one other journal too. I think it's excellent because just so the patients, the listeners should know, there's such a wide range of conditions. I mean, even such things as having a copper or B1 deficiency or B6, which actually works, I think, believe both ways. You could be, if you could be deficient or if you get too much B6, this is what's fascinating about this condition. So yeah, I think that, that kind of publication is super valuable. For the I happen to be reviewing the causes of neuropathy earlier today for a chapter I'm writing, and I had just summarized the findings on nutrition. Mm. So I'll, I'll mention that while nutritional problems were a big concern earlier on in previous decades and centuries when malnutrition was more common, it turns out not to be a major factor in the United States and in most developed countries because The quality of people's diets is so much better. So many people take vitamins. And also there's universal supplementation, for instance, of thiamine and B12. It turns out that in the series that we published in 2016 and other similar series, malnutrition is not a common cause of small fiber. And the only vitamin B12 and thiamine deficiency cause large fiber neuropathy. And the only thing we see, and again, I see this only very occasionally, is excess vitamin B6. And most often what this comes from is well-intended people taking megavitamin supplementation without any medical oversight. Yeah. Uh, There's no reason that people should self-dose themselves yeah, that happens. Vitamins just because they don't require a prescription to get them. And these probably do as much harm as they do good. Yeah. The only other thing I want to mention, which I do see in my practice too, believe it or not, it's very interesting, is like with celiac disease and certain other malabsorption syndromes that patients very, and first subtly, but then not so subtle, 
can become very mineral and vitamin deficient. So again, I never forget my first celiac patient that I ever saw. She came to me initially because uh, she was complaining she was so tired. And I did a uh, what's called a CBC, a cell count on her, and she was very anemic. And then again, we looked into why she was anemic and turned out she was, her iron levels were very low. And it's interesting. I referred her to a friend of mine who's a hematologist. He looked at it. This is 20 years ago, 25 years ago. And he said, okay, let's put her on iron. And he put her on iron for about a month or two months, and she still felt awful. And what you're making me think about now, she was also having like a tingling and joint pain, all these strange things. And finally, the patient said to me, <laughs> she was a very smart patient, she said to me, she goes, do you think I have celiac disease? And I go, well, do you have any stomach problems? You know, that was my question. She goes, well, not really. You know, she goes, but I read somewhere that you can uh, be anemic from celiac disease. I said, I think we should check that. You're right. And sure enough, she was positive and it was endoscopically confirmed. And uh, she had across the board, not just iron, she had B12 deficiency. And so I just wanted to mention that to listeners too, that as much as foods are fortified, a lot of people are taking supplements. If it's going through the gut versus sublingual, there, there is still a possibility, you know, you could have a, a mineral or vitamin deficiency. Well, I think what you're speaking about is that screening recommendations don't apply to people with specific medical conditions. So, yeah. of course, someone with celiac or other GI problems is at risk at, at, for malnutrition. Um, what I'm seeing more often is the patients who had mm. gastric Bypass, right? Bypass or other surgeries. Yeah. That's probably even more common. Yeah, you're right. I've also seen 100%. celiac patients. But again, screening recommendations mean these are the tests that should be performed in everybody, people without medical history, such as yeah. testing for diabetes. That right. should be universal. But yes, of course, if a person has a specific medical history, they've traveled to a specific country or they have a job that might expose them to particular toxins, then yes, then you're going to actually be undertaking what I call second tier testing, which is not something I would recommend that be done to each and every person. Okay. Let me ask you too about central nervous system involvement. And this is interesting. And again, I know your interest is in peripheral nerve disease, but patients suffering- They're all connected. Well, right. Patients suffering from what's been labeled as fibromyalgia should they have an MRI or CT of the brain? And the reason I'm asking that, it's interesting. There was an article in, I think it was Discover Magazine a while back, and there was a researcher there at Georgetown who was following a lot of Gulf War syndrome patients who had widespread pain. And he was following them for like 15 years. And he was reporting that from his data and you know, following these patients that their, I believe their MRIs were showing that specifically like the right inferior frontal occipital fasciculus was smaller. Do you normally order in these patients MRIs or CTs of the brain? And do you think that could be important? That's a great question Mm -hmm. because I don't, but it's been shown by very good research. I'm thinking of my friend, uh, the researcher, Brian Callahan, But even the American Academy of Neurology now has come out against imaging. By imaging, I mean doing MRIs or CTs of the brain and spine in patients who have uh, peripheral nervous system complaints where there's no evidence of a focal central nervous system problem. These are expensive tests, and they're 
terribly overutilized. So there is not an indication for imaging of either the brain or the spinal cord in routine patients suspected of having peripheral neuropathy. But you know what's interesting? What about those patients, you might agree, that, I don't know, something like a PET scan of the brain? You know, only because we know if these patients are experiencing chronic pain, there must be some type of changes that are going on in the brain, in the possibly the circulation. And I know, I can't remember if it's out at Stanford. They're yes. very pain, very big. I've got his name. You know, they're very big pain uh, center out there. He was led by an anesthesiologist. Yes, thank you. <laughs> I can't remember names anymore. Yes, you're absolutely right. And that's kind of the flip side of the coin. Yeah. Which is there's been inadequate appreciation that peripheral neuropathies and small fiber neuropathies in specific can have profound effects on internal organs. We talked briefly about the GI system and how the enteric nervous system is part and parcel of the small fiber neurons. So malfiring and degeneration of those neurons that are going to your stomach and your intestines contributes to a lot of the GI symptoms. But there's been increasing recognition that a lot of internal uh, symptoms, and I think this goes to the brain as well, are due to loss of small fiber control of the microvasculature. Mm. So there's mm. something called POTS, yes. postural orthostasis tachycardia syndrome, yeah. which was extensively investigated uh, starting out at the Mayo Clinic, the peripheral nerve people at the Mayo Clinic who were world leaders. And it was shown that at least 50% of POTS is neurogenic. What POTS means is that when people stand up, they begin to feel a little bit dizzy, uh, lightheaded, some, somewhat confused. And the worst case scenario is they actually faint and fall to the ground. They develop rapid heartbeat or tachycardia. Mm. The problem is not so much with the heart and blood vessels. It's that when the nerves that normally constrict most of our peripheral blood vessels aren't working, we get peripheral vasodilation. And this means that blood is pooling in the lower parts of our body and not being returned to our heart to be pumped out to where it belongs. That's called preload failure, meaning it's a kind of heart failure, again, not the fault of the heart, but just because the heart is like an engine running out of gas. Yeah. I mean, the heart can't pump blood if the blood isn't being returned to the heart. The head, the brain, is particularly vulnerable to this. The eyes as well, because, of course, they sit at the very top, and so there's the greatest uh, difficulty maintaining your blood pressure up at the top parts of your body. Mm. And that's why sort of changes in your vision, color, colorful specks or black areas in your vision, and symptoms, mental symptoms, um, including agitation and confusion, can be one of the earliest signs of vascular problems. So we've really neglected to realize that some of the effects of small fiber are due not only to direct neuronal malfunctioning, misfiring, and then degeneration, but also to the uh, problems with the blood supply. We're just not able to get the blood to where it needs to be. And I think that's what underlies a lot of the brain fog 
that patients with fibromyalgia and, and small fiber neuropathy report. That's interesting. You know, one other thing too, I just, I'm going to get into treatment, which I'm really excited. And we'll talk about what, you know, one of the things that you've really brought to light, but just on a medication basis. And again, I saw this from the Georgetown. I had spoken to him once years ago, who was treating all these Gulf War syndrome patients. He said he felt the best thing that helped the patients with pain was cyclobenzaprine, better known by Flexeril. And I have used that in some patients just to give them some relief. Do you have any experience using that for patients? It's not something that I use much Mm -hmm. because, again, it's a muscle relaxant, and it's one that I don't think was intended really for long-term use. I don't find that excess muscle contractions is a major problem in okay. the patients that I okay. see. Okay. Um, what I tend to consider for symptomatic relief is medications, and not just medications, but treatments that address the underlying cause of the patient's symptoms and discomfort. So if a patient's having... GI problems or brain fog or low blood pressure or tachycardia because of poor autonomic control of their blood pressure, I direct them to the website of Dysautonomia International DI, which is another patient support organization. And I educate them about the importance of wearing compression stockings to minimize blood pooling in their legs to walk continually. I'm pacing back and forth right now, lest I faint from... (laughs) From my hard questions? I mean, no, don't tell me that. (laughs) So my point is there's a lot that patients can do to improve their symptoms, even without medication. Eat a high-salt diet, avoid dehydration. It's not just medications, but also then there are medications, for instance, that patients can be given to improve their cardiac output. Mm. And if that's the base problem, then that's going to make them feel better. That makes sense. Well, I want to get to one of the final parts, which is actually, to me, the most exciting thing. And I'll just preface it with this. I actually found out about you, Dr. Oaklander, from the prestigious medical journal USA Today. (laughs) I say that with (laughs) tongue-in-cheek. I remember I was reading it one time. I think I was on vacation somewhere, and there was a blip saying Harvard researcher successfully treats fibromyalgia with immune globulin. And this really got my attention because my background's in immunology. And again, in seeing patients here in New York, you know, I had done some other special training, you know, trying to treat these very complicated patients. And uh, one of the trainings had promoted using gamma globulin to help patients. And I was using that uh, in my patients, I was actually giving them intramuscular injections, and I was seeing a response. So when I saw that little blurb in USA Today, I was like, this is fascinating. And then I started to delve into some of some of your research papers. So what made you think at the time when you decided to use, I know you use IV gamma globulin, what made you think to try that for small fiber? Was there any precedence for that? Was it, again, just you didn't want patients to remain on corticosteroids? Yes, it was really the discovery that we made starting with that one patient so long ago that at least in some patients, the cause appeared to be autoimmune. And as I mentioned, you know, you start out with corticosteroids because that's sort of the rock bottom fundamental treatment to try to suppress 
autoimmune attack. But as you said, it's not something we like to continue long term. It's not healthy. It's got so many side effects. And the standard treatment for immune neuropathies, or most of them, are these pooled immunoglobulins, which have a variety of effects to dampen down um, immune system attack. And so that's why we very cautiously began to use that. I'm glad I didn't see that article because I think that I wouldn't want anyone to walk away from here and think that the treatment for small fiber neuropathy or for fibromyalgia is is IVIG. Mm. And I've kind of heard that people are starting to say that, and I would really like to discourage that view. IVIG is only a treatment for immune neuropathies. I mean, it's used for other things as well, but among neuropathies. So if your neuropathy is due to diabetes, if it's due to vitamin deficiency, if it's due to HIV, taking IVIG isn't going to do a thing. Right, but you said in your and papers, or what was it, I think, was it 40 or 60%? are idiopathic, you know, meaning us, the doctors are idiots. So there is a lot of this on, let's say if if you had done your workup on a patient that came to you with small, you know, that you diagnosed small fiber neuropathy and you couldn't find any of the different tier underlying causes, wouldn't you sort of label that idiopathic small fiber neuropathy and give that patient a trial of gamma globulin? That's a great question, and there's no right answer. In fact, it's something that's being hotly debated Mm. right now in the medical community. Um, IVIG is super expensive, costing almost $100,000 a year, and it has to be given intravenously every about every month or even more often by vein, by nurses, so expensive. A lot of patients feel sick when they get it. IVIG is in short supply. So I don't recommend it. I Mm. do not recommend using IVIG, and I do not do it as a kind of stat. No, I really do not. I mean, it's not feasible to give IVIG to everybody who has idiopathic neuropathy. But some of these people suffer so so terribly. Yeah, so among young patients. Yeah. The 41 in our 2013 case series. Right. Among, and these, again, these were all idiopathic. Right. So each and every one of them was idiopathic. Right. None of them had diabetes. None of them had right. chemo. None right. of them had any of those things. Right. Among them, it was only 15 of them that we ended up offering IVIG to. Uh, what we look for is evidence that in that particular person, their idiopathic small fiber might be immune. Right. And that's what we like to see right. before we recommend a trial of immunotherapy. Yeah. I mean, because I, to me, I'll tell you also from my experience, you know, again, as I said, I was trained in immunology in my fellowship. And, of course, we used gamma globulin for the immune-deficient children, you know, like with what's called Bruton's gamma globulinemia, sure, right, common variable. I mean, it makes a huge difference yep. so they don't get infections and die. But... One of the other fascinating things through all my training was that I used to see, for example, in a really severe drug reaction called Stephen Johnson's. This is where, for the listeners, you know, where a person could get a full body rash that's life threatening. And it was really fascinating, you know, that in those cases, sometimes the patients, nothing else was would work, but they would get IV gamma globulin and it could save them. 
And you know what I took away from that over the years when I've, and I've followed different reports where IV gamma globulin has been given or intramuscular gamma globulin. And what's fascinating about it is that it does two really interesting things. One, it obviously supports the immune system. It's not like a lot of these new biologics that suppress the immune system. So it actually bolsters the immune system, but it also is anti-inflammatory in, in the same way that cortisone is, but without the side effects, without gaining weight or mental changes or blood sugar changes. So it true, it's very hard to get. I know that even in my own office, when I get the gamma globulin, which I give intramuscular, I'm usually competing with the military who buys up a lot of it for their the soldiers. So gosh, if we were able to get more access to it and help patients, I don't see I don't see the downside for these patients if it can make a huge difference. That's a big if. I mean, the honest truth is that the ifs are still there. It still does cost $100,000 a year. Most people are not going to be able to get insurer approval for it. It still does have some serious side effects. I've had occasional, you know, rare, I agree with you, much much, uh, less common than corticosteroids, but there are rare patients, for instance, who can develop neutropenia or reduction in their white cells. Mm. People can have reactions to to antibodies that are in other people's blood that makes them feel sick. Mm. People can feel like they have, people can get bad headaches. You were giving lower doses. This is higher dose IVIG. I, I want to have this interesting discussion with you right now. You know, what, again, what I do in my office, I give a lower dose because again, what my goal is, I don't feel the need to replace their immunoglobulins like an immune deficient person. I'm looking for the anti-inflammatory or block the autoimmune response that I can get away with this lower intramuscular dose. This is, you know, maybe we should do a paper one of these days, but uh, this is what, how I'm trying to use it in patients. And fortunately too, surprisingly, except for some soreness in the arm, I, I don't see the complications that can occur with IV gamma globin, which, you know, can be thrombosis, clots, stuff like that. But anyway, but that's... Broke. Yeah, so you're at a different dose range. Yeah, much lower, uh, the much dose lower. The range I use is the one that was established mm. in other people's clinical trials yeah. of IVIG for inflammatory neuropathies, uh, like the ICE trial. Right, And okay. the starting dose is two grams per mm. kilo yeah. per four weeks. So a person might be getting 100 grams yeah. of IVIG, and it could take four or five days to, of intravenous drips to get that into them and maintaining the IV that long and having Mm. a nurse in their house. So yeah, it's a much higher dose than you use. Yeah. My my final question uh, I wanted to ask you, this was actually for a friend who's in Germany who was diagnosed after a year of torture and being extremely sick. He's very young. He's in his 20s. Brilliant young man who so debilitated by this condition finally was able to get a biopsy in Germany that showed he had small fiber neuropathy. And, you know, he had asked me to maybe, I guess, pass along to you, he's got severe exercise intolerance. I mean, if he does something for a small activity, I'm talking about ping pong or going for a brief, you know, run, he's in bed for days. Have you seen like a different category? I'm not sure even in your latest paper you mentioned that, like where there's different subtypes where they get such extreme exercise intolerance. And is there anything they can do about that? Yes. And that's something that's so common. In fact, when we gave our unbiased small fiber symptom survey or the SSS to a group of, gosh, I don't remember, maybe 100 or so patients with biopsy verified small fiber, 
to see what the most common symptoms were. This kind of exertional intolerance turned out to be a more common symptom than the tingling in the limbs that the textbooks tell us is Mm. the most common symptom. And again, the evidence so far, and there are two papers I'd be happy to email you. Sure, I um, appreciate it suggests that this is, again, due to dysregulation of the microvessels in the muscles. So when the muscles exercise, normally the capillaries open up to bring in more oxygen and all that good stuff and carry away the lactic acid. And when that can't happen, the nerves that control that just aren't working right, you can exercise. You become prematurely fatigued. You go into hypoxia and anaerobic metabolism uh, far earlier. In other words, your muscles poop mm, out right. as if you had run a marathon much, much earlier than they normally would. It's because they're getting starved of blood flow and oxygen. And there is treatment. There is treatment for that. So cardiologists and pulmonologists are becoming increasingly aware of this. Um, I have some papers on this. Is it, would it be medication like the angiotensin converting enzyme medications or something? What, what? Um, yes, there are medications that are used, um, hmm. pyridostigmine, mestinon. There are medications to improve oh, that's blood to pressure if a patient's having tachycardia as mm-hmm. part of that, mm-hmm. to regulate their heart rate and maximize their cardiac output. It's very treatable. Oh, wow. This is really so important. tell your friend that there really is oh, I will. medicines that can improve that fatigue. That's great advice. You know, one of the two quick things, you know, Dr. Kevin Tracy, who I interviewed several months ago, uh, he's a, a top neurosurgeon at Northwell, and, you know, he's been working most of his career on bioelectronic medicine, where they put these devices in, which is it's really fascinating, that controls vagal tone, and which I think it has to do with microcirculation. So who knows, down the line, this could be a tremendous sort of connection yes. to help these people. the autonomic nervous system is part of the small fibers, absolutely. Is that right? So what mm. we're talking about mm. is um, dysautonomia, neurogenic dysautonomia, mm. and poor control of mm. the of the blood flow and the circulation. Uh, Dr. Oglin, one last thing. The corneal microscopy, is that something that has to be done by ophthalmologists? Is that very hard? Because, again, I think some of your papers, and I've seen in other ones, where they're saying this could be just as good as a skin biopsy in some ways to show that the, uh, the fibers are deficient. Corneal confocal microscopy is very interesting. You're right. It's a surrogate way or a non-invasive surrogate for skin biopsies because you don't have to take a biopsy since the cornea is transparent. And with the right kind of confocal imaging, you can actually see and measure the small fibers running through the cornea without having to take a biopsy. So that's very advantageous, non-invasive. It can be repeated, really exciting stuff. Um, And we, I've published one of the papers, others have done more, showing good correlation between skin biopsy measurements and these measurements from the eye. But Do you have the ophthalmologist the reading these? The conclusion is that it's not yet ready for prime, prime time. time. There mm. needs to be a lot more work done to look at you know, the diagnostic performance, the positive and negative predictive value, the reliability. 
It's very labor-intensive, and as you point out, it requires specialized expensive equipment. It does. And ophthalmologists or ophthalmic technicians able to do it. So I it's see. not going to be I widely accessible. Well, this, I hope for our listeners, has been a tremendous opportunity to hear from a world-class expert on a condition which up till now has been in some ways considered the hidden cause of fibromyalgia. So uh, I want to thank Dr. Oaklander so much for taking the time out of her incredibly busy schedule of research, seeing patients and being an advocate for patients suffering with chronic pain. Um, I think your work has opened the door and has given hope to so many patients who had given up hope. And I know, like you mentioned in your articles, to say, again, so many of these things are treatable and reversible. So I want to give all of our listeners who suffer from anything like this hope. And if any of you have hopefully enjoyed the podcast and have any questions or comments, please send them to me at Dean Mitchell MD at Facebook or Twitter, and we'll try to answer as many as possible. Thank you again, Dr. Oaklander, for a, a tremendous interview. Thanks. Thank you very much, and thank you to the audience, and good luck to you all. Okay, well, we'll have to stay in touch because I'm fascinated by your work and uh, enjoy the rest of your holidays, okay? Thank you for listening to The Smartest Doctor in the Room with host Dr. Dean Mitchell. You can continue this conversation on Instagram at Dean Mitchell MD, Facebook at Mitchell Medical Group, or at DeanMitchellMD.com.